Individual asset syndication would be where I've got one, two, three, four Main Street. One, two, three, four Main Street might be X asset type, whatever it is, self storage, mobile home community, apartment building, whatever it is. And you're going to be looking at that deal specifically. So the investment decision comes down to putting money together to acquire, operate, and run a strategy with a single piece of property or a single investment. That would be the syndication side. And, you know, full disclosure, you know, the company started back in 2006, it went through syndication. So that is something that we used to do more often. What's going on guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Today, our guest is Zach Morrow from Boron Capital. And today we're talking about single asset syndications versus funds. Okay, we're digging into the differences and why folks may lean as passive investors more toward funds as opposed to single asset syndications, some of the benefits of fund investing, and just really digging into that topic. We also talk a little bit about self-storage and mobile home investing. And really our conversation is fo focused around the strategy that passive investors can use to invest in single asset syndications versus funds. Good questions to ask. And we also talk about questions or the, the main question that Zach thinks passive investors should ask more often, the questions that they question that they don't ask often enough. So a lot of great information in this one. You're going to learn a lot. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, and I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate, specifically in apartment building and self-storage syndications. If you're interested in learning more and potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call with me. I will look forward to speaking with you then. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, guys. I appreciate that so much. And I really do mean that. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. I say this every time. You might be sick of hearing it, but I'm going to say it again. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. No matter what podcast app you use, if you do enjoy the show, do take a moment and look us up, the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. Hit the, hit the subscribe button. That way you'll get every new episode every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Thank you for tuning in once again. Our guest today is Zach Morrow from Boron Capital. Without any further ado, here we go. Zach, thank you for joining us today. Man, Taylor, you're so welcome. I appreciate you having me. It's been a great talk so far, and I'm sure we're going to have a great conversation for our listeners out there. For those that don't know about you and what you do, can you give us an intro and uh, tell us about yourself and your business? Yeah, absolutely. So glad to get connected, number one. Glad, glad to visit and be able to share today and uh, look forward to being able to share on what's going to be most valuable for the audience. But a little bit about me. I run the investor relations for Boron Capital, and we're a private investment firm that focuses on setting up investment funds that allows investors to gain access to opportunities where they can invest into tangible assets and focus on growing their wealth and uh, actually having confidence and transparency in where they're investing. So I think all the things that you're looking for when you're investing, Taylor, like we were talking about is being able to have something tangible, something real that you can touch, see, feel, you know, and actually grab a hold of, you know, that's our main focus, man. We, we want to be transparent with what we're doing. We want investors to have opportunities that they wouldn't have otherwise. So that's why we do what we do. Nice. Great. And we've seen over the last uh, few years, at least that I've been in the real estate syndication space, have seen the 
fund model really increase in, in popularity, both from the the fund sponsor side and also from the investor side? People generally seem to have a bit more interest in it. Can you tell us about just the we'll, we'll talk quick about the structure of funds, just in case folks aren't familiar with with how a fund works as opposed to an individual asset syndication? Yeah, absolutely. So like you said, for those who don't know, individual asset syndication would be where I've got one, two, three, four Main Street. One, two, three, four Main Street might be X asset type, whatever it is, self-storage, mobile home community, apartment building, whatever it is. And you're going to be looking at that deal specifically. So the investment decision comes down to putting money together to acquire, operate, and run a strategy with a single piece of property or a single investment. That would be the syndication side. And you know, full disclosure, you know, the company started back in 2006, it went through syndication. So that is something that we used to do more often. And then we transitioned into the fund side. And, you know, what makes a fund different is rather than an individual piece of property, you're taking an investment strategy, having a team to operate and carry out that strategy over a diversified portfolio of a specific type of asset or a collection of assets, right? And so the primary difference is rather than investing into a single property, you're investing into a strategy that could be a collection or likely is a collection of properties. Nice. So I suppose here in this conversation, we could break out, you know, a lot of the difference with differences between single asset syndications and funds. And I think one of the big things that comes up or the first thing that that comes to mind for a lot of people is, okay, I'm investing in one, two, three, four Main Street. That is the asset that I'm investing in. Whereas with a fund, the assets may or may not be identified yet. And in, in your experience, is that a big deal breaker for investors or you know, how do investors really build that a level of comfort with you know, the idea that the funds, the fund may not have its assets identified yet, but it may have criteria. Yeah. And and that's an important distinction, right? There with a syndication, you're going to know exactly the address, the property, the asset that your capital is going into. And so as an investor, you have a decision to make of where and how you're investing and why you're investing there. So let's maybe kind of flesh out some of the maybe the pros and cons or differences in decision making, because each person is going to have different criteria that they're looking at. When you're evaluating a syndication, I find that most people start with evaluating the actual deal itself, the actual property. And so you're going to have way more focus on that specific property. And then from there, if I like the property, I like the asset, then I'm going to ask the question, do I then like the strategy? And do I believe that this person can execute that strategy? I mean, that's really to summarize the process that you as an investor has to go through. Those are your considerations. Now, when you go to the fund side, really, it's more about number one, do I believe in the asset types we're going to be investing in? Do I believe then in the operating team to carry out a specific strategy? And do I agree with the strategy, right? Because strategy is going to be important, right? So with certain syndications, right, what's what's common in multifamily, I think we, you know, everybody's more familiar with that. So we'll kind of look at that as, you know, the value add idea, right? Everybody's looked at a value add multifamily deal where we're going to be buying one, two, three, four Main Street, it's X amount of units. We're going to be, you know, we're at X occupancy. We're going to be, you know, laying out a plan for value add. And then we're going to plan on moving that in, you know, 18 months, 24 months, 36 months, whatever it is, right? And this model and this strategy is about value add, putting cash in, adding value, and then pulling cash out. Now I've lost my asset. So there wasn't asset accumulation. It was more about a dollar exchange to get more dollars 
X amount of time down the road. So more of an IR, I, an initial IRR model. And then so from a strategy perspective with, say, you know, a fund on our side, we have funds that focus on more of a longer term. And we've done that shorter term value add as well. So from a strategy standpoint, we have funds that focus on asset accumulation, which means we're looking for assets we want to continue to operate. And we want to add value to them, but then retain the actual asset. And so as an investor, you got to one line with the strategy. What's happening? How does that strategy help me? How does it help my overall game plan? Number two, what assets are they investing in? So, you know, one, you and I are two assets that we were discussing were self-storage mobile home communities. This is an area of focus for us. It's one that you guys like as well. It sounds like, you know, a lot of the the listeners uh, see the value inside of that space as well. And so, you know, do I like these asset classes where we're going to impose this strategy? And do I feel like this team can actually operate and successfully do that? So obviously the track record component, but the major difference with the fund is just going to be a matter of diversification, right? So typically in funds, you're going to be able to have a diversification, not just an asset number. So rather than having one asset that your money's going into, you can invest into numerous assets. So diversification of actual asset number, right? And then with that, because you have multiple assets, you typically will have multiple locations. So when I'm actually looking at it, I wanna see some diversification geographically, right? Because those different economies will have some diverse outcomes as I'm planning for the future to help protect my wealth. And then thirdly, you can have diversification of asset class. So sometimes it might be one to two asset classes, right? I, I, I like to see operators or I like to see groups who have a little bit more specialized focus, right? Specialized focus is typically something I'm looking for because, you know, when I'm going to trust somebody with my money, I want to know that they have the experience in those particular things to carry that out, right? We want them to be specialists inside of those spaces, right? If I wanted something different than that asset class, then I'd probably go find somebody else that specializes in that thing, right? But let's say, like, for instance, maybe you're putting self-storage and mobile home communities together in a particular fund. So now you have diversification location, diversification number of assets, and you have diversification across different asset classes as well. So the main differences are deal evaluation with a single property or a diversified portfolio that's helping giving you an index. And, and you know, theoretically, the idea would be to help hedge risk and increase your opportunity for success. Okay. So with any investment, I think it's important that we ask or define what is our exit strategy, right? And you talked about the exit strategies of buying assets and and selling them off, but for passive investors and funds, what is, in your opinion, the optimal, you know, exit strategy, or let's say the optimal question to ask about a, a fund's exit strategy. We see folks rolling up portfolios and looking to sell them to much larger investors and just have one big exit on the back end. What do you think about that? Yeah, great question. So typically whenever I'm processing or anybody's asking the question exit strategy, I find that the real question they're asking is how do I get my money back? Totally. Yeah. Right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So I think I think for your more savvy individuals, they want to know, I want to be protected with my money. And I want to make sure I'm going to get my money back preservation of principle has to be number one. So whenever we'll use that value add, let's just call it a 36 month, three year value add. I have a very clear cut. I'm going to put my money into one, two, three, four main street. We're going to do these construction changes, these uh, upgrades. I'm going to increase rents, increase occupancy. And then 
I'm going to invest into a market that's growing and, and appreciating. Therefore, within three years, I think I can sell it. And boom, I got my money back. I made my actual return. I'm good to go, right? They got their money back. They know when they're getting their money back, how they're getting their money back. And so the positive there is having that clear-cut end. Some of the drawbacks is that when you make that sell, you no longer have the asset. And then when you make that sale, you're going to have to pay capital gains, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously we can work 1031, but 1031 does have its own constraints, right? You got to go find a new thing to go make you money, mm -hmm. right? So am I going to be able to place my money within that time frame to go find something new? And the question whenever I'm processing exits is I kind of process it from a vantage point that the only, the only reasons you would ever exit is because you would be able to make significantly more money that you could then go do significantly greater returns with, or because the actual strategy or the asset was no longer going to be able to perform in the way that you would like it to perform. So if it's continuing to perform at the rate I want it to perform, I probably don't want to sell it. And if it's not, if, if I can't pull my money out, pay the taxes and then go get into a much better asset, it's going to do much better then I'm assuming much more risk by selling. So then you could take the flip side is, well, do I just want to keep my money locked up in there forever? And the, the answer is a resounding no, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Nobody just wants to have their money tied up in the thing forever. They want to be able to access it. So this is a question that, you know, we have to ask ourselves because when we're looking at asset accumulation, which is, you know, one of our primary strategies with, with one of our particular funds is how do we give investors their money back? So we actually focus first on return of principal rather than return of an return on investment. And so, you know, when people are talking about an exit, yes, you can have an in-game in mind of options, but things continuously change. And if you're going to be focused on asset accumulation, you have to be uh, in a position to get your money back up front and then continue to own the asset. So we focus rather than on flipping and focus on an ROI right off the beginning and just a cash to cash transaction, we focus on paying investors back their principal. So they've got no money in the deal. Then they continue to own in the actual equity appreciation and continue to participate as a partner, even after all of their money's paid back. So there's different ways to do it. Maybe it's a roll up, like you said, and that's a strategy. Maybe it's a value add flip. That's a strategy. And then another strategy would be, you know, some people are just keeping their, their equity stuck in the deal, which, you know, it is a strategy. Whether, whether or not it's a good one is going to be, you know, relevant to you and your goals. Uh, for us in particular, when we're focused on asset accumulation for long-term wealth, we're focusing on getting all the investors' money back out to them and allowing them to continue to participate uh, for the life of the investment and then only exiting if and when it made sense based off of the criteria that I shared earlier. So is that primarily accomplished by adding value and then refinancing out that original capital, but still holding the properties? 100%. Yep. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So I think a, a tough question that folks sometimes get in this space is, hey, I'm a passive investor. I feel like I can go find syndicators. I feel like I can go find deals. What do I need a fund sponsor for or what additional you know benefit would I get through investing with a fund rather than, hey, I can just go find these deals on my own? How do you typically address that concern? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that people have to decide whether or not they want to be a business owner or an investor. And it's really just it's really just a matter of where you're at in your life and really the amount of time you want to spend into it. 
So if you want to go become an operator, obviously, I'm not here to tell anybody that they can't do it. So if you want to go and find deals and source deals and you have the capital, you have the resources, you have the actual connections to go and find the deals you're looking for. I mean, by all means, obviously, you, you assume certain risks because it all comes down to your ability to obviously accomplish the plan, find the right deals, get the right financing, bring on the capital. I mean, there's a lot of variables there that come with education and experience, but obviously people can do it. And then on the other side of things, as an investor, the, the distinction is as a business owner, you're going to be the, the one running the thing. So you need to have the experience and, and all of the practical fundamental things to accomplish the deal. And if you can do that, it's a good business. Why is it a good business? Well, obviously I think it's a good business because it's the business we're in, right? That's what we do. So I do think it's a good business. So, but that's what we do as our business. Investors are people who have their own business and then they have excess capital that they want to put to work to have their capital working for them. And so it's just a distinction of where you're at and what you're trying to accomplish. If you want to go and run a business, you can get in the business of real estate investment, or you can become an investor into the business of real estate investment. And so it's just going to be different personality types, different different phases of life, different types of capital that are making decisions differently. So if I'm really good at running my operations and I, you know, happen to run, you know, a massive media agency, well, do I want to then go and also run real estate deals or do I want to take my capital and then invest it with people that specialize in the areas that I'm wanting to invest? My own personal thing would be finding and connecting with people that are specialists in whatever field it is you're trying to accomplish or grow in. So whether you're growing your business and you're that guy running the media agency, well, if you want to grow your media agency, you're going to connect with specialists in that field, right? If I want to invest into real estate, well, then I want to connect with specialists in real estate, you know, so on and so forth. So that's how I would, how I would address it. I would just ask people to consider what they're hoping to accomplish. Do they want to become a business owner or do they want to become an investor? So, okay. So I suppose to maybe reframe the question a little bit is, so if somebody has a um, hundred thousand to 500,000 to invest in, in deals, they've decided they're going to invest passively. They could say, Hey, I'm going to go find a, a basket of single asset syndications, or I'm going to invest this in funds. I've already decided I'm going a passive route. I would assume or presume that the way you would address that is saying that they're going to get a lot more diversification through a fund because you're going to be able to spread that capital out quite a bit more than they would by going after single asset syndications. Would you agree with that? Disagree with that? What do you think? Yeah. If I, if I understand what you're saying, mm-hmm. I think you let's assume, let's assume I've got 500,000 and let's assume I want to be diversified. Well, I could A, put 500,000 in a single fund. And now I know I'm going to be diversified based off of that fund strategy. Or I can go and shop for individual deals to try and create my own portfolio. Is that, is that what yeah. we're saying here? Yeah, yeah. So when I'm shopping for individual deals, it comes down to ultimately, where can I place my capital confidently? Because there's so much more than just the deal. If I can't find you know 10 deals at a given time with an operator I trust, I'm assuming new risk with every single group that I go with. So you're going to have to do the due diligence on the group, the deal, the strategy, and be able to find all of that at a given time. And so you have increased risk with every new person. Now, 
whenever I go with an individual fund, I'm doing my due diligence that one time on that group going deep and assuming I agree with everything that I can make that, that allocation. So there is increased work with that. I mean, could you create additional alpha by sourcing it yourself potentially? But part of that is then relying on, it comes down to your time, comes down to your own expertise and going and sourcing every individual deal rather than finding a trusted sponsor that is experienced in sourcing individual deals because we're doing that, right? We're actually sourcing those individual deals. And then I would say you also have constraints when it comes to ability to diversify with the amount of capital you have, right? So if I've got 500,000 and I can invest into a fund that has 15 assets and I, with 500, have diversification across 15 different assets, can I get the same type of diversification by going into individual deals? Well, then it comes down to how much you know, what's the minimum investment across multiple different deals? I think that it's probably pretty standard to say that with a lot of groups, you're looking at anywhere from 100,000 up to 250,000, you know, for an individual investment. So we'll go with the lower number, let's say with 100,000. If I did 100,000 with my 500, the max I'd be able to get exposure to is five deals. So, you know, could I go and do it source individually? Absolutely. You know, but I think that when you find great partners, when you find a great thing, it's much simpler to double down on and continue with. I personally, for that reason, like to find trusted experts and then they become close friends. And then I continue to do business with them because you trust them, you know them and you're doing the right thing. But it does take time, right? Everybody has to evaluate those individual relationships for themselves. And um, sometimes, you know, you got to kiss a lot of frogs. Man. <laughs> uh, uh, we've, we've kissed tons of frogs. And um, unfortunately, you know, you can get really far down the line and you're like, okay, check, 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 check. Oh, X, dang it. We, you know, we spent a lot of time. We thought this was going to be the one and then nope, that is not the one. So I think we've probably all gotten down to the, you know, the, uh, the ninth inning with certain deals or with certain relationships. And then you're just like, ah, oh, man, I can't, I can't finish it. So you know, it is what it is. We all have to go through that process, but once you find a good one, it makes it that much simpler. Nice. So um, this is kind of a, a, I suppose, a recent question uh, from my end. I was on a phone call with a, a passive investor last night, and she's a very experienced real estate investor, but is kind of new to the the fund and syndication space, has her own portfolio that she's been very successful with and asked a number of questions. And then we came to the end of the call and she asked me, if there were any questions that she hadn't asked that I thought she should have asked, which I think is a, a good question Love to that. ask. It's frankly, it's kind of a tough question to answer. Now she's very savvy. So fr- I, I couldn't think of anything. If she had addressed, I think most of the concerns that that uh, an intelligent, experienced passive investor uh, would have. But for your case, is there anything that comes to mind that passive investors don't ask about frequently enough? Any aspect of a a fund deal or, or what have you that you just think folks are maybe not aware of, maybe you just don't think to ask about, I think you probably get the point of the question. I, I actually love this question. And what I tell everyone is anytime you're evaluating a deal or you're looking to invest with somebody, you always have to ask, how do you make your money? Just a good question. Yeah. I think you absolutely have to know how they're going to make their money. And It's very important to know how, when, where they're making their money. And you want to ensure that their incentives as the operator, the manager are aligned with yours. And as an investor, I'm looking for my well-being to be put before yours. So not just in they say that, you know, we always do our best, you know, anybody could talk about it. What does the contract say, right? When you're looking at investment documents, you want to make sure that those documents contractually have your incentives 
put first. And so an example of that might be a deal where I make money before they do, right? And um, I'll give you, I'll give you a specific structure. So I talked about paying return of principal back, right? So you know I've seen it to where a hundred percent of cash flow goes to the investor until the principal has been returned. I've seen it where there is a promote, or which means there's an equity split, but not until the investors made X amount of dollars, right? You've had to get your money back plus X percent. And then after that's happened, then there's a promote, then the sponsor makes money, right? And this isn't about squeezing out your sponsor because you want to ensure the person operating the thing is being paid well enough to be able to continue to operate the thing, not from lack. Keep the lights on. Yeah. Like you need to ensure that they're taken care of as well because you're wanting to partner on, on this thing and grow together. But contractually, you want to see that their incentive is to do everything to pay you back first or to make sure that you're paid first. You know, we have some fixed rate things where, you know, on that fixed rate, the investor gets 100% up to this point and the company doesn't make any money unless there's profits above that mark, right? So contractually, you want to see how are they making their money and, and in the contract, does that hold true to show that their incentive is to be there to perform and take care of me first and that they're going to be there for the long haul, right? People talk about skin in the game, making sure, like, is this how they're making their money? Like, are they making money off of me or are they making money with me, right? There's a big difference. And I'm looking for people that are making money with me and they're making money the way I'm making money and they're getting paid based off of their good performance. And if they don't have good performance, then they're not going to get paid. So they're incentivized to perform contractually. So always ask, how do you make your money? And then make sure that that lines up in the actual investment documents. Nice, nice, I like that, that's a great answer. Right now, we're gonna take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, Zach, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I hope so. (laughs) I'm sure you are. First one, (laughs) what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? So- for the listener, I told Taylor, he said he was going to serve this one up to me when we got started. He's like, these are easy questions. And <laughs> I'll just tell you this. I am like a nuanced thinker of an if then. There's always an if then to every question. So was the best investment in what way, in what, in which this, in this, this. So here's what I'll say. I think that you said other than education. And so I would tell people that education is always going to be number one. That's so why it's taken off the table. Yep, you take that off the table. <laughs> so I'm really glad that you said that. So I just want to reiterate, he takes that off the table because it is number one. And I think the next best thing you can do with your education, obviously, is to invest in your relationships and your network. And when we're processing holistically, you know, a hot stock tip, a hot, you know, real estate deal, you know, a hot, you know, XYZ, you know, best investment, 
makes for a fun story, but the most applicable thing you can do is to continue to gain proximity to the people that you are seeking to grow with. And so the best thing I've done is the same thing that I shared with you earlier, is to kiss lots of frogs, find great operators, find great partners of people that are specialists in the areas that I want to grow. And so I've done that in, in all the areas of business to help increase, you know, my personal income to then help increase my investment network to then, you know, give me the ability to then invest into areas that I want to grow in that I believe in. So once you know and are educated in where and how you want to go, then you want to find the right people to help take you to the next level. So the best thing you can do is find great partners. And, and I would say that's the best investment that, that continues to pay off time and time again. Awesome. I love that. Well, we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? <laughs> well, if we wanted to get real practical with that question. Again, it's difficult for me to speak in absolutes like in this way. So like I have an investment where I invested X amount of dollars and I literally lost all of it. So that was a terrible investment. But at the same time, you know, you only lose when you, when, when you don't learn, right? So on that one, I'll, I can tell you where I went wrong was I didn't spend my own time on the education. I had the money. Somebody said, hey, let's go do this. It looks like, you know, an asymmetric return. I knew I was taking a large risk and I knew it was kind of an all or nothing type of investment. So I assumed the risk, but as far as a bad, bad investment, I mean, it was zero, right? So that was a bad investment, but to expand or expound on the question, you know, when we're looking at, at bad investments, I think that I would kind of elaborate on the first point. The best investment is the bad things I've done is whenever I didn't take the time to evaluate really what I was doing. And I, believe that I could do everything all by myself. And that goes back to number one is finding the right people. So I've kind of taken the hard road on certain things in certain times in business. And that was because I didn't take the time to find the right people to help me get there. And I carried all the weight on my own shoulders and thought that if it was going to be, it was up to me and I couldn't get any help. I didn't know how to ask for help, you know, and uh, that was definitely one that slowed down my growth tremendously. And whenever I think about growth, I think about investment. And so I'd add that to that one as well. Gotcha. Well, sometimes the the tough lessons are also the hardest. They're the, the most important lessons are the hardest ones to go through. My favorite question, that leads us to my favorite question here at the end okay. of the show. What is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? The most important thing I've learned goes back to number one, obviously finding good people. But I think that the best thing anybody can do is spend time focusing on understanding your strengths and strength and weaknesses, being self-aware in that way to identify where you might be struggling, what belief systems you have that could be holding you back, and really getting clear on why you think the way you do, why you're processing the way you do, why you act the way you do, and um, really getting clear on what the end result is you're looking for, and then spending time on bridging that gap. So if you don't take the time out, this is you know going back to maybe the old cliche to to sharpen your axe, it will slow you down tremendously. And so I would tell people that, especially those that are hard-headed like me, I am relatively hard-headed. So I used to try and force a lot of things. And um, I thought the harder I worked, the more it would pay off, but I didn't take the time to sharpen my axe, which ultimately, ultimately made me more dull and less effective. And so I would encourage everybody to take time to reflect on a regular basis. And this can be as simple as, you know, you know, daily journaling back to what you've been working through, processing through, 
to come back through. And so taking time to sharpen your ax, I think is number one. And I would encourage everybody to do so. So hopefully that uh, answers the question. I know that it's kind of a, a vague statement, but ultimately when you dig into it, there's a lot more depth to it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it makes sense. And Zach, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for all the lessons about investing in funds versus single asset syndications. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch, if they want to learn more about what you're up to, where can they track you down? Yeah, absolutely. So the best way to connect is to text us, right? Everybody texts these days. So you can call or text us at 817-771-0615. You just text the word info to that number that gets you connected with us. A member of the team can connect with you and then find a good time to visit. So um, if that's you, if you want to get connected, yeah, reach out, text us, call us, and um, be happy to visit from there. Great. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. I see those reviews and they every time they give me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Thank you for tuning in once again. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday, and we'll catch you on the next one. Bye-bye.